And I said, he's on steroids. And Alex is like, wait a second. Your little brother and your older brother are both on steroids? I said, yeah, they're both on steroids, and they're both willing to talk about it. And they're like, and you're not? And I'm like, no. I just tried them once, and, and I felt really guilty. So, like, that's the movie. And that's how it came about was because none of these people would talk to me, so I went and talked to my brothers instead. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is director Chris Bell, who I first found with his film Bigger, Stronger, Faster. He went on to make Trophy Kids and then Prescription Thugs. He had some involvement working for Vince McMahon and the WWE. Very interesting guy. I want to be really clear. He's talking about a lot of substances that have had huge benefit in his life. I am not in any way advocating anything that he is talking about in regard to that. I have not verified it, corroborated it, so I brought him on here to talk about where his life is. A huge aspect of his career has been talking about our society's consumption and addiction, especially to prescription drugs. So he's talking about some alternatives that have had alternative means of medicine and supplements that have had a, a positive impact on his life. But, you know, I'm here to talk to him, but I, I certainly don't want somebody to listen to this and think, um, you know, they, they need to do their own research into some of the things that he's talking about. But uh, I've been fascinated by his work for a while. Um, and sort of how he's tied in Bigger, Stronger, Faster, Trophy Kids, Prescription Thugs to a byproduct of the American way is leading to some of these dark tendencies that you're seeing record levels of depression and addiction to pharmaceuticals, suicide, anxiety. And um, I thought he's tied it together in ways that were very honest and... Uh, and intriguing and, and just the scrutiny of him pushing back um, has led to some really interesting sort of revelations. A lot of the interviews he's conducted with experts have been very revealing and, and troubling, deeply troubling. So I was really happy to talk to Chris Bell. I hope you enjoy it. Why don't we start with, um, because, I mean, I first came to your work with Bigger, Stronger, Faster. I bet a lot of us did who were fans yeah. of your work. Um, but you don't mention that, the, the WWE working that you did. So, I mean, can you walk me through just sort of how you got to that documentary? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. So when I was a younger kid, you know, younger guy, um, I was always, like, I was always into wrestling, obviously. You saw Bigger, Stronger, Faster. I always loved that stuff. And when my younger brother, Mark, a.k.a. Smelly, when he got excited about, like, my older brother had been involved in pro wrestling for a real long time. He had wrestled in WWF. He had wrestled The Undertaker and Bret Hart and Lex Luger and every star that you can name. You know, he's pretty much uh, wrestled them. But he was like a beat-on guy. You know, I say that he was a jobber. And um, he never really made it, probably mostly because of his own fault, because of, like, drugs and alcohol and other things. He just was never 
he was never all together when they needed him to be, you know, and like, I think they saw that. And mm-hmm. so he never really made it in. But what, um, what happened was when my younger brother, Mark, moved out to California, everybody basically followed me out to California. And when my younger brother moved out to California and got, he wanted to get into wrestling also. So I brought him to this wrestling school and I met the guy that owned the wrestling school and we started talking. I'm like, well, I have like a film background and whatever. And I love wrestling. And we just started shooting stuff and making stuff. And I became like sort of the head producer for this small wrestling league in California. Well, that small wrestling league, what, the people that I brought to that small wrestling league were John Cena. And then like I brought a bunch of other guys because wow. I, I worked out at Gold's Gym in Venice. So I brought John Cena there, right? So John Cena got in the ring, uh, bounced off the ropes twice, did a back bump, which is where you just fall on your back. And he got up and he told me and my brother, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And <laughs> he went off to the races, right? So when he was at WWE, he was having a conversation with Stephanie McMahon. And one day John Cena he told me, hey, Stephanie McMahon's been asking about you. He's like, would you like to work here? And I was like, hell yeah, that's like a dream job. Like, go work for WWE. And so I flew out to Connecticut, to Stanford, went to the Titan Towers, um, had a conversation with Stephanie, and she instantly hired me. And I was, like, so excited, like, over the moon about it. And, um, you know, so I I worked there. Like, the very first day on the job, I was in a limo with, like, Hulk Hogan, Mean Gene, and Vince McMahon. So to me, I was, like, in this surreal, weird world, you know. And it was awesome. I had, a, I had like, a, a great time working there. I met, like, everybody, obviously. All the wrestlers loved me because I was, like, one of them. But they mm. have, like, this writing team that's a bunch of nerds. And I wasn't a nerd. I was a power lifter. I was, like, a power lifter, and I went to USC film school. So I had, like, both these two things. Like, I was kind of a nerd, but I was also really into, like, lifting and training. And so I could hang with the wrestlers, but I had a different sort of outlook on things than a lot of other people did, you know, like – I think a lot of people like to take people who lift weights and put them in a box and say, that's all you can do. But if we look at people like Joe Rogan and what he's done to change the world, he's a meathead. You know, he loves to lift. He loves to train. He loves to do jujitsu, all these things like that. And so like, that's kind of where I look at myself is like in that realm. And I just didn't really jive with any of the other writing so-called, they call it a writing team, but really (laughs) it was like a head writer on each show, SmackDown and Raw. And they just hated me because, like, I went in there. So I, I used to work out at Gold's Gym for Venice Forever. John Cena basically sort of got me the job in a way. And then when I got there, I was good friends with The Rock because The Rock trained at Gold's Gym every day. And I talked to him all the time. I went to lunch with him, like, almost, like, every day for a while while I was shooting Scorpion King because his trainer is, like, one of my best friends. So when I got to WWE, it was I felt great because I felt like, hey, I'm here. And the Rock's saying what's up and John Cena's saying what's up. And, as soon as, like, that started, I was like, oh, shit, the other guys hate me because I was in mm. with what they call the boys. You know, I was in, down with the boys, and um, it was just really hard to get any of your ideas across or get anything made. So I was only there for, like, a short time, maybe, like, six months, and, yeah. um, and then I got fired. And it was, like, the feeling of getting fired was actually just as, like, grandiose as getting hired. You know, like, it, mm. it felt like it felt like my world was crashing down. I Stephanie McMahon came and told me, she's like, Hey, things just aren't working out with you and the guys. And like, you know, we, they basically needed me to, they wanted me to be more like a secretary. I'm like, well, I have all these big ideas, you know, like what mm-hmm. the hell? And it just didn't seem to like work or jive. And, you know, maybe it's me not, not doing what they needed and that's okay too. Um, but I was basically like a glorified secretary. I had to run around and make copies and do all these things. And I'm there going like, aren't I a writer? Aren't I supposed to be putting in all these ideas? 
But whatever. I mean, I don't even care about it because I had such a good time working at it or such a great experience. And the fact that Stephanie McMahon personally fired me, I'm like, I'll show you guys. Not necessarily like, I'll show you. Like her, I wasn't mad at her at all, and I have no grudge against him. I love WWF, WWE, I should say. Um, and the reason why uh, it inspired me so much was because I just remember how bad it felt that day, and I was like, I'm going to show you guys that I'm worth it. Fast forward, like two years later, I get a phone call right after Sundance Film Festival, and it's Vince McMahon, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm in trouble. You know, like, hmm. he's going to sue us for some of the footage we use or something's going to go on. I couldn't even believe it. It's like Vince McMahon calling me personally. He's like, hey, Chris, this is Vince McMahon. I, <laughs> I was like, what the hell is this, you know? And yeah. I was like, I mean, he never called me even when I worked for him, you know? Like, he, I didn't even know he had my number. So he called me. He said, listen, I just want to tell you, I just watched a screener of Bigger, Stronger, Faster. Now, we had sent a screener in advance to certain people that would appear in the movie that would mm-hmm. be, like, part of the story. And we just said, if you guys have any problems with this, let us know before this goes to Sundance, you know? And so we just, as a courtesy, sent it out to a couple people who might have said, hey, man, like this part, we're going to sue you over if you put it out. You know, it's like that kind of thing. They might have run an injunction. But we wanted to give them the opportunity to. We didn't want to, like, ambush them and have it come out and be negative in any way that they thought. So when Vince called me, I thought, like, oh, something must have slipped through the loops or whatever. But he called me and just said, listen, I want to tell you, you said everything that I've been wanting to say for like 20 years about steroids. Like, I don't think they're that dangerous. I don't think they're that bad, but I can't say any of that stuff. You know, I, he's like, we got in big trouble for it back in the day and blah, blah, blah. And so we had a great conversation about it. And to me, that was like, I went to WrestleMania shortly after that as a, um, as an invited guest of WWE. I was in front row seats down in like Houston and it was amazing because I was like, now it was somebody, you know, I, I, I had worked there, but now I was there on their dime as they're like, hey, you know, come out and hang with us kind of thing. It was, it was amazing. And so I went to um, WrestleMania. I remember being in the bar that night and the producer, Kevin Dunn, who like runs WWE, came up to me and said, we fired the wrong guy. You know, and I, like that meant so much to me. Like when he, he's like a producer that produced TV forever and just like yeah kind of we made a mistake on on you I think and um that just made me feel good like I don't think they did make a mistake I think they did the right thing I don't think I fit their their like style that they wanted but it just made me feel good to know that I wasn't useless and I wasn't a waste and you know I got my dream job and I actually you know w- was able to like show them that I wasn't a loser you know and that just yeah. felt like a lot to me it felt big you know what do you think it is when you, I mean, like, like you, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you mix up WWF with WWE because it's hard for me to let go of WWF with how imprinted well, it was in my childhood. It's hard to say, like, what we really love, you and I, what we really love is WWF. I don't really like WWE necessarily. Mm. I like WWF. I like the old school, and it's not, like, necessarily the branding or anything, but, like, at that time when it did change – you know, it seems like, oh, it was, there was something more magical about it back then, you know. And it's interesting because right now watching, like, this Michael Jordan last dance thing, I'm like, yeah. did we just have this nostalgia for it? Or was basketball way better back then? And it's my right. opinion. I think it was way better. I think there was more characters. It was more vibrant. It was, like, cool. And I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeing it now as an older person being jaded by it. But, like, it seems different now in both basketball and wrestling and other sports. It seems like there was some magic that – was around when we were kids and I don't know where that's gone, but um, 
who knows, maybe it's because of like social media and everybody arguing on the internet all the time. You have that same feeling around sports. You know, I don't really know what it is. Well, and isn't part of it, I mean, I've, I've talked to some people about this and said that, well, like my mother was baptized Catholic and on my father's side, there was Mennonites. Um, I was definitely growing up around a lot of religious people where when I would go to church, it didn't really make sense to me, but my version of the church was professional wrestling where it was forbidden to acknowledge what was most obvious about it, which is that it was scripted, that it was designed for uh, provoking emotional responses to make you care about characters, to talk about the outer world through these wonderful cartoonish characters, I mean, comic book characters. Um, But there was a kind of wink, wink to it that was really fun as a kid to watch. And, and, see and maybe, which, you know, yeah. honestly, maybe there was a wink-wink to the NFL back and the, and the NBA and all these other things, like where drugs were rampant and people were able to do whatever they wanted and run wild and have more fun. And, you know what I mean? Like it was more free back then, it seems. And so yeah. it was just different, you know? Yeah, I mean, when I think of Hulk Hogan, obviously Hulk Hogan was a massive brand, but I've always thought, what does it say about us? And I think this is very prevalent in your work that the Make-A-Wish Foundation for Dying Kids, that the number one person they want to see before they die to sort of brighten their lives with some kindness is Michael Jackson, Mickey Mouse, and number one is Hulk Hogan. Somebody who's not doing a real sport. I mean, not that it's not, I'm not disparaging wrestling. I just mean... Well, and you know that John Cena has done the most Make-A-Wish Foundation wishes ever. And the one who's in second place is The Rock. So it's like they love that. They're, there's something that draws kids to, that, to it. I think it's like they're these heroes that are like real-life superheroes. Like, right. for example, you could never get Batman to come to your birthday party. Or you can never right. get Batman to, like, wish you a happy birthday or anything. like you know. But you could get Hulk Hogan to do those things. You could get Hulk Hogan uh, somewhere for an autograph signing. You know, but you couldn't get a real Superman. Kids would just know there's no real Superman. That's fake. But there's something about wrestling that blurs the lines between like faith and reality where they, there's these characters, but these characters are actually like embodied by a real dude. And it's yeah. like, it's a permanent character. So it's almost like uh, George Costanza on Seinfeld. Like mm-hmm. he'll always be known for that because we saw him week after week after week doing that same character. And now sure. if he's in a movie, you're like, that's George Costanza. You can't even get out of your head, you know? And so he'll be a legend forever, Jason Alexander, just because he was such a character on a show. And I think that that's what we get with uh, WWE. I know, like I'm good friends with Jake the Snake. Mm. And that guy's amazing. He's been around forever. And he's just such a uh, character that when you talk to him, you're like, like he is so, these guys, I'm telling you, of all the people I've ever met in the world, the WWE has a way of finding the most unique and interesting people. If you, Stone Cold Steve Austin has become a really good friend of my brother and I, and he's just amazing to talk to. Like when you talk to him, you're just, he's, he's magnetic. You just have to keep listening and you could listen all day. And he's talking about, he's oh yeah, the son of a bitch. I tried this workout and this, this made me sore. And that did, you know, and he just goes off and off and you're like just listening to him ramble, but it just sounds awesome because it's stone cold, you know? And so sure. there's something about these characters that have a unique impression on us. And I think it's because they're part real like The Rock always says, The Rock is Dwayne Johnson with the volume turned up to 10, you mm. know, and that's really what it is. And that's why you actually can meet Dwayne Johnson. He's a real person, but he's also The Rock, you know? 
Yeah. Well, and I think also what you're talking about is that missing ingredient of us believing in them. I mean, I always, when I think back to what Vince McMahon was doing with the WWF at that time, it's kind of like he's this scientist with a controlled experiment for what provokes emotion in an audience to either hate the people or love the people as long as you care about them and care about them enough to pay to watch them, he's going to give it to you. He's going to find what you like the most. And it's interesting that a Hulk Hogan would become so transcendently popular where it is a kind of democracy, like from a capitalistic sense of if people want the villain, Stone Cold Steve Austin was drawn up to be a villain it's just he became really popular where people were cheering for it. And well, they man, did something really smart, right? Everybody yeah. hates their boss. Boom. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. Off of the races. You have, you know, 52 weeks of television right there that they could just program, you know? Like, right. okay, this guy hates Vince. Good. We're going to make that the storyline. And, and you know the beautiful thing of it? Like, my brother and I always talk about this. The best person on TV since we were little kids, the best performer in the WWE by far, in my opinion, is, is Vince. He, oh, yeah. knows, he is so he's so over the top. He plays his character so well, but he's always kind of been like behind the scenes being the puppet master, you know, and I remember back in the day, he would do these interviews and he would make like Andre the Giant stand on a box because Vince is like 6'2". So <laughs> if, if he stood there and did an interview, he wanted to look really small. He was really smart with a lot of the stuff he did. He used to tell me that he would stand there doing interviews with, with his legs spread like, if, he didn't, if they didn't have a box, he would, like, spread his legs out so he'd be shorter than the wrestler. So they only shoot him from the waist up. You know, he'd stand up with, like, his legs out a little bit so that he's shorter. And it, it's just really smart. It's like he had this way of making this perception of everything, right? And so, like, uh, their favorite saying over there at WWE, the whole McMahon family, is perception's reality. It's like what you perceive is what people are going to actually believe, you know? And that's what their whole thing was. Make everybody believe it. You know, sell it. Right. Did you ever listen to the radio lab that talked about the, the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels debacle where Bret Hart punched out Vince McMahon and sort of that line we're talking about between reality? Yeah, and I think that's honestly, I have a problem with like the Bret Hart situation because I'm always going to back Vince on that. You know, you mm-hmm. work you work for somebody. Bret Hart's not wrestling. He's just like he was great, but he's not wrestling and i don't think it's i don't i don't know i don't i don't think that that's your call you know like in a sport that's it's different if we're talking about the ufc and they're trying to manipulate something and that came out because it's a real sport but when it's something like i mean that's like saying like to uh george lucas well i'm not going to die in the star wars movie that would be stupid i'm not going to die i'm going to do this instead and they would be like no you're going to die we're going to like and then they go edit the movie and they just kill you off anyway right like that's what it would be like and, of course, Hollywood would do that. Of course, any boss would do that. They're going to be like, great, great, we, we have your performance. Now let's just, you know, pack it in. So I, I don't know. I, I don't like the way that Vince did that, and I feel bad for Brett for that because he was a great wrestler and a great champion for so long. But um, I would back Vince on that. You know, I'd say, like, hey, you know, th- this is his show. This is his thing, you know. Well, no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, but I'm – I'm trying to get at with it that was an interesting turning point for the perception of what that company was doing, that Vince recognized that he was the best character in it because by having a black eye because of a real dispute in a fictional situation, he started blurring the line even more with who the people were in reality. Oh, yeah, like characters that they created. That's it. That's it. And 
fans loved it even more. Yeah, yeah, because they they can they're more invested in it because they like they actually hate Vince for what he did. You know, like a lot of people that love Bret Hart were really mad at him. So it just it it just sort of they played on that stuff. You know, they played on real life and they try to do it like nowadays. And sometimes it goes good and sometimes it doesn't go so good. So depending on like you know the different situations, like back in the day. They used to be able to take the Iron Sheik and say, hey, he's the bad guy because he's from Iran. They used to be able to say, hey, this is like, you know, Sergeant Slaughter fighting, you know, uh, Nikolai Volkov because he's from Russia and they're the bad guys. But if they came out with some Russian character now and said he was the bad guy, you'd have everybody all over social media saying, like, this is, you know, uh, racist or this is like some, sure. you know, like some stuff like that. You'd get, it would get all crazy. And so they can't really do the same kind of you know, I guess jokey things that they used to do, and that, that kind of diminishes some of the fun. Like I had mentioned back when I when I worked there, I said, you know, this place used to be so colorful. Now it's turned into a bunch of guys in black trunks and black boots, and that's mm-hmm. all it was with real names, and it just became boring. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody else was somebody, and now you had guys like I like I think Randy Orton's awesome, but like that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like everybody just came out with black trunks and black boots and. Um, just use their real names, and you're like, well, that kind of sucks. Like I, I like Cowboy Bob Orton and, and Roddy Piper, and the different looks that they had, and the different outfits they would wear. And you know, it's just if you think about back towards like the wrestling dolls that they used to make that LJN used to make, and you look at the lineup of those dolls, like if you go on the internet and search that, it's sure. amazing what those dolls looked like and how colorful that rainbow is. And then right. if you took a like a batch of uh, WWE characters now and you pop the heads off, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the guys. You know, like, they're just all wearing the same thing. They all kind of look the same. They're all kind of built the same. Um, They're not allowed to use steroids, which I think is just so stupid and ridiculous because these guys are on the road 24-7. They're athletes. uh, They're they're athletes slash actors, in my, my opinion, and I think they should be able to do whatever they want with their own bodies. Uh, I think it's ridiculous for them to tell them, like, well, you, you know, it's because it's a publicly traded company and people get mad about it. Now, I'm not encouraging them to use steroids, but I know a lot of them would be a lot healthier if they were to use testosterone and things like that to support their immune systems, to support, you know, a lot of these guys are over 40, your testosterone dwindles, you're on the road every day beating the crap out of your body, you're taking painkillers and all these other things. It all adds up, you know, and there's things that people can do to uh, mitigate that, right, like TRT and other things that you can safely do through a doctor. When I say steroids, people get all crazy. Oh, they shouldn't be able to do that. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about, like, just juicing, really. I'm just talking about taking even TRT levels, and they're not even allowed to really do that, you know. Um, yeah. But I know that people are like, there's, there's definitely holes in that because are you telling me? So my friend Mike Bucci used to go by the name Nova. He used to work for WWE, and he got fired for using steroids when he was the like the uh, head of talent relations, he wasn't even wrestling, and he got mm. fired from like over something with the uh, the wellness policy. And you're like, well, wait a second, you know that Vince has taken him, and you know that Triple H has taken him. It's just such hypocrisy, you know. And it's like right. maybe a way to get rid of people that they don't like. Um, I think they use it as an excuse, or people that they were they were done with, or or whatever. I just. I just kind of find it ridiculous that there's even uh, a rule about it. And, you know, when you tell people they test for steroids, everybody just laughs at you, you know? Right. Well, and it seems like a a big thing that you do that I find really interesting is you begin Bigger, Stronger, Faster with this pantheon of, from my childhood too, 
heroic figures out in American culture with uh, Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone, Rambo, uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, sorry, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold, yeah. and Hulk Hogan. But very quickly, you line up your siblings. I also have two brothers, and we oh, loved cool. all this stuff too. And yet, you look at what America is sort of telling you to do as far as playing by one set of rules, and then very quickly find out that there's another set of implicit Ways in yeah. which you have to act to get to that role to win. It's so interesting that you bring that up because I was just on the phone with my ex-girlfriend last night and talking about this. So yesterday, so I've been exploring now. I want to do for steroids what I did for, I want to do for psychedelics what I did for steroids with bigger, stronger, faster. I have found so many practical, amazing applications uh, for the use of psychedelics. And the way that I stumbled across it is I was in chronic pain for over 30 years. I had double hip replacement surgery. Uh, I was addicted to opioids. I went to rehab. I had all these problems. I was in so much pain. And then I found this drug called Ibogaine, and I heard that it could reset pain receptors. Ibogaine is usually used to treat addiction issues, which I also had had in the past. And at the time that I did Ibogaine, I had a 30-year chewing tobacco habit. Um, I did Ibogaine. It's a, it's a three-day high. It's just capsules that you take. You know, but you take them in a progressive uh, protocol and um, you get really crazy high, but it's nothing crazy. You just kind of get really lightheaded and then you see a bunch of stuff and you go through this really spiritual experience, but basically you just lay down in bed. It doesn't make you do anything crazy. It doesn't make you like run out and rob a store or do anything like, you know, uh, or jump out of a window like people think on psychedelics. And honestly, it healed my entire body from head to toe. I can't even explain the effects of it. I did a short film that's now on YouTube called Ibogains. It's I-B-O-G-A-I-N-Z because mm -hmm. all of the gains that I got from, uh, from doing it and it's called Ibogain. So, um, and that was actually suggested to me a long time ago by Joe Rogan, but just kind of in passing. And when Joe Rogan mentioned it to me, he mentioned it to me not for pain, but for like addiction issues. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know about that stuff. I've heard about it, but I already went to rehab. I don't think I need that, you know, that kind of thing. But then when I, like later on, I had learned more, I had heard more about it. And somebody had mentioned in passing that it may work for pain. And so I, I did that also. Right. And it just, it, it fixed everything. And then there was something that I wanted to get back to what we were talking about before, because I brought this up for a reason. We were, we were just on the topic of something, now I forget what we talking. Well, in about. order in order to get to the the kind of place that a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger or a Hulk Hogan oh, did, yeah, okay, it was sort so of play by the rules I, in America. Exactly. This is what I was telling my ex girlfriend. I said we were like she has the same problems that I do sometimes. She's beautiful, but sometimes like we and like I've done a lot of stuff in my career, but a lot of times I get nervous to ask for something or ask for help, or I get like I, I don't you know it's like I don't I consider too many other people's feelings. And then after I did psychedelics, I don't really feel that way. I just do. I just keep doing. And I do what I want to do, and I treat people good. And that's all, that's all people can really ask of you, you know? And so after I did psychedelics and I, and I felt that, I told my ex-girlfriend, I said, listen, everybody that, you've always, that we've looked up to as kids, everybody, like from Hulk Hogan to Princess Leia, has done some crazy things in their life that – we wouldn't think that they did growing up. They were hidden from us. And these things are like, she's, she's a DJ, so she's a big Doors fan. And I said, well, you know, the Doors, the, the name of the group is from the Doors of Perception. 
from the book from Atlas Huxley, uh, The Doors of Perception about psychedelics. And that's where they got their name. And so, like, all this beautiful, beautiful music came from Jim Morrison and all these beautiful, amazing wrestling matches that we love came from Hulk Hogan. One guy did it on steroids. One guy did it on psychedelics. I'm kind of saying, like, hey, there are some things out there that can, like, really boost our mental and physical performance, and they're not that dangerous. And I think that's the point. What are the things that aren't that dangerous that can get us to that level? And, you know, I just found that everybody that I know has done something to get there, you know? Right. And we got to stop being so blind and we got to stop being so, uh, like, naive to it and also just open our minds that, like, hey, if you want to be really great, there might be some things and some steps that you have to take, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, like, harm yourself. You know, there are, are safe ways to do, like, a lot of this stuff. And then just, you know, I've always been a big fan of just finding things that work, like, really fast. Like, rather than doing, like, 10 different protocols to get out of pain, I just did Ibogaine and crushed it, got out of it. You know, like, I've been trying to kill pain for 30 years. And now I figured out a way to just do it once and done. And now if I get in pain again, if something happens again and I start getting pain again, well, now I just know to go do that again, you know, or now I know to go, there's other psychedelics that also work for pain. And I'm exploring that right now because that's going to probably be my, my next documentary is, is sort of talking about pain and how to get rid of it. And uh, my last film, A Leaf of Faith, was about a plant called Kratom that had helped me three years previously with pain. And so I used Kratom for three years and the whole time I kept hearing about Ibogaine, but I thought Ibogaine, like honestly, in my mind, I thought psychedelics were so bad. I thought they were for losers. I thought they were for deadheads. I thought they were like, and they, they are for deadheads, but that's, and they're cool. I'm fine with that, you know, mm-hmm. but like, I think once you do it and you do it for a certain reason, it becomes a little different. Kind of like taking steroids because you're older rather than taking it because you want to get big. Like you're taking it for a therapeutic reason. There's a completely different feeling around it. And there's a, uh, I think a completely different like safety around it. Like I don't think I would take acid and go to a rock concert, but I'll take it and lay down with like, you know, uh, lay down with some music on. And that's the way I explore my mind and what's going on. And I just sort of started diving into this stuff. I'm actually really a newbie to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm still getting like, still getting acclimated to it. So I've done mushrooms, acid, and, Ibogaine, um, all of them I've done, you know, once basically. They're not, that's what's interesting. I was like, I used to be such an addict. I used to have to have every, like all the time I had to have everything. And then even after I got over all my addictions, I was addicted to coffee. I was addicted to chewing tobacco. You know, all these things would just hold on to me and they would just keep sucking me of my own free will. And when Mm -hmm. I realized that that's what was going on and I wasn't being productive, then I said, like, I got to stop all this stuff. And so, you know, I'm now I'm just trying to continue to heal, you know. Well, I wanted I wanted to get at a couple things about that because I think what like your all your documentaries have in common, I think it's getting more so with with all of the ones I've seen, Trophy Kids, Prescription Thugs, but beginning with with Bigger Stronger Faster is you're looking at this kind of prescription of what American society is telling you to be. And this feeling that you talked about in that film a lot is this feeling of feeling too small, feeling a little overweight, needing to be bigger than you are. And like before, you're, like we have these famous people that are heroes to kids growing up, 
But, I mean, there's all these documentaries. You mentioned Last Dance exposing Michael Jordan as a very hostile, aggressive, nasty person that has surprised a lot of people, that this is what drove him to such greatness, uh, leaving Neverland with Michael Jackson, where I remember as a little kid, all of my friends are saying he would never be so openly around kids if he was molesting them all. And then... Then you hear about, like, a locked door and, like, all this other stuff. You're like, hmm, maybe there was something there. Right. Or, you know, Bill Cosby growing up, America's dad. I remember really loving him as a little kid. Well, and I remember him reprimanding all the dirty comics. That's true. Yeah, this guy and that guy and, like, you know, like, they're so bad for comedy. Look at at what they talk about. Because he wouldn't even swear. Right. You know? And then it's like, who's next? Right. Well, and so when you're – a lot of what you seem to be doing is sort of deconstructing the hypocrisy and, and I mean, tying steroids into this culture of winning. I mean, there was this quote by, the, I think Francis Ford Coppola wrote it for Patton, where America loves a winner but, and will not tolerate a loser. Yeah. And you seem to make that point a lot that once these people make it, we don't really want to know what was behind them making it. And yeah. and they project this image, which seems immensely deceitful. And yeah. and there's, there's this also lot this weird. Yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that there seems to be uh, in a lot of your films uh, this theme of a kind of innocent longing you have to become something, and then this loss of in- innocence as you make the journey towards trying to become it. Or looking at how other people tried to become what they did. And then the real way that they did it is quite different from sort of what they project and advertise was their method to get there. Yeah, and I think that that's really important for people to know. I think everybody know, like, you know, it's really – you can frame it in, the, in looking at, like, bodybuilding, right? Like, the first thing somebody needs to know is that if you don't have good genetics, you're probably not going to be a professional bodybuilder. Like, you have to start out with a decent physique. Like, even if you're skinny, you could be the skinniest person in the world. Like, I've seen some pretty skinny dudes. Dexter Jackson's a good example. Came in as a, started out as a skinny dude and and, uh, has won the most bodybuilding competitions, pro bodybuilding competitions of any bodybuilder ever, including winning Mr. Olympia once. And um, he's been around forever. He's like 50 years old. He's still jacked. It's like, you know, he had the genetics to begin with, and then he was willing to put in the work and then he acquired all this knowledge, and there's like there, there's steps to that, you know. And yeah. he was willing to like to go through those those steps. And I think that that's what like that's what we need to understand is like you don't get somewhere like you don't get to be Hulk Hogan overnight. There's like he says, there's the training, the prayers, the vitamins. Then there's also the tanning salon. There's also the steroid dealer. You know, there's also you know who's giving you your painkillers. There's also you know like, there's a lot of things that the training, the prayers, the vitamins, the painkillers, the steroids. Like, imagine if he said that. Like, that would sure. that wouldn't be a good. That would now turn the ne- the message negative, you know. And um, and you and you go but, after a whole, a whole industry in a way that I'd never seen before. That these images that are in bodybuilding magazines of in six weeks taking this substance, here's the changes that can happen. That there, how predatory these industries are, and this culture is to project that the American dream is reachable to everybody in ways that yeah. is so deceitful. Yeah, the fitness business is the worst when it comes to, like, deceiving you. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have friends who I'm, I, 
I have friends who I'm personally friends with, but I just unfollow them on social media because all they're doing is just advertising crap all the time, you know, that they don't right. even use and you know it. And it's like, so I, you know, I do a lot of social media and I have a couple of, uh, of people that I work with that sponsor me and stuff like that. And, uh, those people, like the people that sponsor me, like it's hard. Like I've had so many people reach out, Hey man, you want to try our new glasses? You want to try this? You want to try, I get offered like everything. And I'm like, well, I don't use that, you know? And so like the only thing I really use, uh, the, the things I really use, which we'll talk about now is like, I eat a lot of meat because, uh, one of the things that I tried to get out of pain, which actually took me in more of a different direction, actually did help a lot with pain was a carnivore diet. So I work with a meat company. Um, and I, you know, I do stuff like that. So like, I just want to be honest with everything I do and everything I put out. You know, I don't want to be like the rest of the uh, fitness industry. I don't want to sell you a supplement if food is the answer. And I don't want to sell you food if supplement's the answer. You know, like I want, yeah. I want to find out what the answer for these people are for certain things. So on one, one hand, I'm, I'm uh, pushing this meat company because it's a really good quality meat. Uh, that also uh, practices regenerative agriculture. It's called Certified Piedmontese. And certified Piedmontese uses regenerative agriculture, so it's actually good for the planet. And then I can explain to people how cows burping and farting is not what's causing global warming. If you right. look at the stats during the coronavirus, they are down so much because of uh, people not driving that people are like, oh, these cows don't make a dent. They, they don't even make a, a visible dent in the um, – because they're still out burping and farting, you know. Uh, the methane that they put out gets sequestered. And, you know, there's when, – when people practice this regenerative agriculture, it's really interesting. But the, um, the carnivore diet I find to be fascinating. It was something – it was a rabbit hole that I went down. Um, I was working on trying to make a documentary about nutrition, and it actually just really – I still might. We still might do this, but – it um, took me down a path that was really interesting because it was a complete body transformation for me. So the way I looked in Bigger, Stronger, Faster, I was, you know, kind of chubby there. But then when I did Prescription Thugs, I got really fat. You know, I got like – I was 260 pounds in that movie. And, um, and you know, now I weigh about like 190. I have abs. You know, like it's just a different person. You're like, wow, that's – like I can't – people always say to me, I can't believe what you did. Like your transformation is amazing. And I say, you know what, what I did? I just started eating meat, <laughs> you know? I just started mm -hmm. eating meat, and I cut everything else out. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, I basically just – like I'll go to a restaurant or I'll be at home cooking. I'll cook up a steak and put it on a plate, and I eat it. And they're like, yeah, but with what else? What else can you have? I'm like, nothing. And they say, well, why? And I say, because when you have other things uh, – first of all, Part of it's an elimination diet. I have a lot of, like, autoimmune issues. And when you have autoimmune issues, the best thing to do is, like, how do we break it down to what's hurting you? Well, we go with, like, one of the least egregious foods, which would be red meat. Most people, I think, like, 90% of people can tolerate red meat, you know. So if there's a small percentage that can't, like, then the, the diet's not for them. But for the people that can, like, anybody, like, anybody that wants to lean out, get in shape, do whatever, they could just literally eat red meat and water as long as the red meat is fatty enough, like as long as it's kind of one-to-one, -one, like one gram of fat to one gram of protein or somewhere close to that, you can survive on red meat forever because it has every nutrient your body needs and nothing that it doesn't. And we've also found that like uh, people were saying, well, there's not a whole lot of vitamin C in red meat and you're going to get scurvy if you do that. Well, we've seen people doing this diet for 20 years. They don't develop scurvy. They don't develop any sort because they don't need as much vitamin C because 
you know, there's different things that you eat in plants and other things that are going to fight for absorption of vitamin C. So I've, yeah. I've just learned a lot about my body and about like nutrients and things you need. Another thing I eat that people think is gross is I'll eat raw liver and I eat raw liver because it's just packed with nutrients. So for me, it's just like getting the proper nutrients that I need. And then like, if I want to eat something else around that, or if I want to cheat once in a while, I'll do that. I'm not very dogmatic about it, but mainly most of my meals are just meat. And that's sort of like served me really well. And then even after I did the ibogaine, so it also helps to really lower inflammation, which lowers a lot of pain. So I did it for two years trying to get out of pain and I kind of got out of pain, but not all the way. And then I did this ibogaine. It was like, boom, it just wiped out everything. And now I'm experimenting with like, cause still, I still have autoimmune issues with my stomach. So I don't want to just jump back into a regular diet. I did that for a couple of weeks after I did this psychedelic experience. And to tell you the truth, I just felt like crap. And then after I went back to just eating meat, first of all, ibogaine reduces cravings. So it made it really easy for me to just go back to meat. Um, I wasn't craving anything else. It wasn't weird, you know, and I just went back to that diet. And I think that there's a really interesting dichotomy here, right? Because we hear plant-based diet, plant-based diet, like crazy. You got to go plant-based. And I'm, look, I don't think that that diet's healthy. I, I, well, I know it's not healthy. I know the reasons why it's not healthy. You have to supplement with it. Now, there are a lot of people out there that might get mad hearing it going, oh, God, you know. But like a vegan diet can be healthy if it's properly formulated. The beauty about a carnivore diet is you don't have to formulate anything. You just go grab ground beef and cook it up and eat it and drink water, and that's it. That's all you get to eat, you know. Or you have a steak, and that's it, and that's all you get to eat. But I think the beauty, um, like we have like vegans fighting versus carnivores and all this stuff like that, and I, I hate all that stuff. What I like to say is I think that the vegans and the carnivores actually have a lot more in common than we think, and we should actually unite against big food and fight big food like I fought big pharma. And hmm. by fighting big food, I mean like let's get – it's like it's crazy. You walk into a grocery store, everything is just junk. Like I would not give any of it to a child if I had one. You know what I mean? Except for mm-hmm. shopping around the perimeter. And that's always been the case. You walk in a grocery store, you shop around the perimeter of a store, it's got everything that you need, all the essential stuff. You know? Yeah. I mean, if we were really in a lockdown, we would lock down the whole center of the grocery store and say nobody needs to go in there, except for the toilet paper section, obviously. <laughs> but, but, right. uh, but honestly, like, if we, if we were to, like, we would be better off in this pandemic if we did that, if we locked people out of junk food and didn't sell junk food off of Amazon or online. Like, People need to be healthy right now. They don't need to be wearing a stupid mask. And that's what we're like. We, we've missed the boat on that. My brother and I have been preaching health and fitness forever. And when this coronavirus came up, my brother said on his podcast, he just said, you know what? This is pay up time. All the people, you know, that have, uh, that have just, you know, ignored their health and ignored everything. Is like, I hate to say it, but it's time to pay up, you know? And um, my brother just like set out to give people tips to be healthy. You know, and, and, and it's funny because he faced a big backlash in the beginning for just saying that for just saying that people should be healthy and you won't get this virus. People are like, you don't know that. And he's like, no, I just know that if you're healthy, you're going to be way less, you know, uh, your body's not going to accept the virus as easily. So. Well, and I, I want to ask you about that because, I mean, one of the one of the through lines of your work is sort of it seems like it's half personal essay, a lot about your family and about you, and then social commentary. And when you talk about your drive towards 
addictiveness and unhealthy behavior, and you also seem to be striving towards being healthy and being your best version of yourself. I mean, in the first documentary, I think right after I saw it, I learned of your brother's death, and there were some comments of of his in the film that, like, really stay with you, where he talks about, I, I, I think he was around 35 or 36 at the time you were interviewing him, about how special he feels, and he's not felt the kind of recognition of what made him special. And I wonder, like, what is it, do you think, in, in you and in your family that you seem to really want to show about this desire to be bigger than you are as a person? And it's like the big benefits of that. I know your your other brother, Smelly, has been very successful with bodybuilding equipment that he designed, the slingshot. Yeah, slingshot, yeah. But, like, the the pros and cons of this big desire and drive that all three of you had to really like leave your mark in the world. Um, you always, and, and also, I mean, in uh, prescription thugs, you reveal your addiction to opioids while you're trying to uncover the system of it being so predatory about getting people addicted to it. And the U S having 5% of the world's population and 75% of the world's market for buying these things yeah. What what do you attribute to like I don't know if demons are the right word but what has led you to do you think you were born with an addictive personality or just some No, of these, no, no, not at no. all. I okay. I was the opposite. So like if you talk to Mark, you say to Mark, "Hey, why don't you drink?" because he like he's rarely had a drink in his life. I said, "Why don't you drink?" and he said, "Because my brother never drank and he was my role model." Now like when I when he told me that when I went to rehab, I just like that hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I didn't know that. I just thought he was a good kid, you know? He's like, mm-hmm. no, you taught me that. You taught me that drinking's for losers. And he's like, but you just got caught up in it. He's like, I don't care. He's like, you got caught up in other things. He's like, it doesn't hurt me. It doesn't bother me. I just see you, and I know it's not for me, and I know that you were right even though you got stuck in it. And he's like a beautiful person in that way where he can separate these things out and still be a good brother and not, like, disown me for it, you know? And the thing is, like, my brother and I are really tight, and we always have been, and hopefully we always will be. Um, I think a lot of uh, his success, like, looking at his success, I'm so proud of him because I was part of the whole thing from the very beginning. I didn't come up with the idea for the slingshot, and I didn't come up with it, but I was there with him, supporting him. Like, I brought him to the gym for the very first time when he was a kid. I trained him from the time he was 14 till the time he was 18 until I went off to school. You know, and I built a monster. You know, my brother bench pressed 315 in ninth grade. You know what I mean? Like, I never did that. He benched over 400 before he left high school. And then, you know, he, he's gone on to squat 1,000 pounds and bench 800 pounds in a competition and all sorts of crazy stuff that he's not even into anymore, which is great. It's like a lot of these things, like we evolve and we grow. I was doing a podcast with my friend Dave Palumbo, who's a big bodybuilder the other day. And he asked me, he's like, like we were talking and I told him about like how I'm all out of pain. I'm like, I'm just excited to lift heavy again. And he's like, why would you lift heavy again? And I'm like, it's just something I like. I'm like, you used to be a 300 pound bodybuilder. You know what it's like. And then I said to him, but who knows, maybe I'm evolving. I just haven't evolved yet. You know? And I think I am. I think like I'm evolving out of like attaching my, uh, my worth to how much I lift or how much I weigh. And I've, I've always been stuck in that weird spot, you know, and I think a lot of us have that with, like, body image and, like, we're – I don't know. It's just, like, if you if you weren't born looking like Superman, 
then you just feel cra- crappy about yourself in this world. Like you go on Instagram, everybody's shredded, everybody has abs, everybody has a nice car. And then like, what do you got? You got nothing. Like, oh, okay. Either you can be depressed or you can do something about it. You know, one of the interesting things my brother and I always comment on is like, why is there such thing as a comic book nerd? That shouldn't be a thing. Everybody right. who reads comic books should be jacked because they realize the heroes all have muscles, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, when you think about it, like Mark and I read the comics and we'd see the Hulk or the thing and like, yeah, yeah, we want to get, we want to get like that. So nobody messes with us, you know? Um, but other people just don't see that. They sit around and read the comic books and drink Coke and, and uh, eat Doritos, you know? And that's it. But if, if more people looked at the comics and said, this is really cool, this is really inspirational, I'm going to go out and get fit. That would be a, a way better way to go for most people. And I think a lot of people, get depressed and isolated and hide away and, you know, like read comic books, get into video games or whatever. But my advice would be like, go out and try to be those things, you know? But I I wonder also at the same time, is like what it seemed like in Bigger, Stronger, Faster, you were, when you're interviewing a lot of psychologists and they're talking about how G.I. Joe has changed to this completely unrealistic version of the male form, um, one study I was looking at just, just in researching, talking to you, is that 90% of women who look at a fashion magazine feel depressed, guilty, and shameful. Yeah, yeah sure. Exactly. So, and, and I know from, like, my own travels to Cuba, one of the first things that jumped out at me while I was there doing some boxing training is I got very distracted by how self-assured and confident women of all ages and sizes look. And I thought, yeah. what is this a, a, a Latin thing, a Caribbean thing? And then it was like, no, it's that there's no marketing to make them feel like shit. Yeah. They are Not just marketing down. No. Well, because I mean, if you feel like shit and the solution is to buy something to solve your problem, which it doesn't do. Yeah. You might actually define your happiness by something beyond just what you consume or purchase or, have as a, a material good and human nature is such that we always undervalue our own worth and overestimate other people's and then something like social media comes along to exacerbate that dynamic where uh, every study that says the longer you spend on Facebook or Instagram the worse you feel about yourself yeah so I just wonder yeah. like and, and you seem to go into that in a lot of your work is like, well, I feel the way to feel good about yourself is to exercise, eat good, get in shape. Like, I don't think, like, I get fit shamed all the time, I call it, because people are like, why are you working out so much? Why are you, doing, why are you just eating meat? I'm like, because I want, I want to look awesome. Like, this, this is an easy way to do it. So, like, what I'm trying to say is, like, <clears throat> while we looked at the comic books and we wanted to be like that, at first mm-hmm. we went out with this goal of, like, get as big and strong as you can, right? And Mark and I evolved into, like, very, like, smart, like, way smarter way more diligent about like what we do, what exercise we incorporate, you know, what things we do, what we don't do, what we eat, what we don't eat, walking, exercise, getting sun, you know, all these things we've like added into our repertoire and we've evolved and we've become like better. Right. So I don't think people need to accept being average. And I don't think, you know, my brother said that and it's kind of what killed him, but in the same way, I still support it. Like I'd rather be dead than average. That's just me. I don't want to be average. So I'm going to do, whatever it takes to get out of being average. At first, I thought the answer was in steroids, but the answer is really in your diet and your nutrition, right? And so mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's like a, a huge evolution is realizing like, wow, you made a whole movie about steroids, 
And now you're like, yeah, they're just kind of an afterthought, though. Like, when you get in shape, that's the time to actually use them to get in better shape, in my opinion. And yeah. I don't think you should use them to get in shape. You, because when you use them, like, you don't need them to get in shape. You, you're already sick. So, like, get out and walk. Get out and do these things. You don't need testosterone yet. Get in pretty good shape, and then you do it, and then you take it up a next level if you need to, you know, or want to or, or whatever. You know, it's all up to you and um, whether or not you want to go to a doctor and do it or do it through, you know, it's like there's several ways to do these things. I'm not a stickler for any of that. I, I want everybody to be healthy and happy, and so the best way to do testosterone is obviously go to a doctor and get it prescribed and whatever, but I can't say that I've seen everybody do it that way and, and be successful. I've seen people do it you know, on the black market and be successful. I think you just have to read into things and be smart and like learn from the right people. And, you know, it's just hard because it's hard to find good sources of information. As you know, in the age we're in now, it's hard to find anything that's not biased, you know? Well, and you, and you seem so adept. Like that's one thing I wanted to ask you about is with bigger, stronger, faster, and, and going forward to your other films, you're a character in your films and, and you're almost every review I've read of your work, mentions this Michael Moore quality where you are, you have some sort of big game that you're hunting down. You're trying to expose some truths. Get, well, get at, sorry, yeah, in all transparency, like Michael Moore was my like hero for a while. So I went and saw bowling for Columbine in a movie theater. And I'm like, this needs to be about steroids. Like this hmm. exact movie, like this whole thing. And I actually went home. Like, <clears throat> so then it came out on video, like a couple months later and I went home because I saw it in a movie theater. I was like, this is absolutely brilliant. And it wasn't even that I was, like, against guns or anything. Like, I, I'm not against guns. I just actually thought the movie, like, the way it was plotted out, the way it was told, the way the story was told, I didn't even necessarily agree with all of it. I just thought it was amazing. And uh, come, it's like, so when, when I started making Bigger, Stronger, Faster, I was talking to a bunch of people. I'm like, well, who made, who made Bowling for Columbine? Who's the guy that produced that? Like, he's got to have all these resources. So we called them. We pitched them the movie. So it was crazy because I worked at Sony at the time as a uh, – I was just like a, a film coordinator over at Sony working on movies. Um, mm-hmm. In the meantime, try, like I was trying to fa- – I was actually trying to be a director. But, you know, you've got to work and make money and eat while you're trying to do that. So I had this job at Sony Imageworks where I was just a coordinator, coordinating like artists to like work on different special effects shots. And it was really boring. And I remember like at that time when I had that job, I got a phone call from the producer of Bowling for Columbine. He's like, I want to meet you at Beverly Hills at noon. And I told my boss I had to leave. And he's like, if you leave, I might have to fire you. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm leaving. And I left and I went, went and met with the guy. His name's Jim Zarneski. And Jim Zarneski ended up producing Bigger, Stronger, Faster. And hmm. when Jim Zarneski ended up producing Bigger, Stronger, Faster, like I, I actually, I didn't get fired from Sony, even though I left. They just wrote me up with a warning. And then, like, a week later, I went in and said, I quit. I'm making a movie. And they're like, yeah, right. Good luck. <laughs> and I went and made a movie, you know. And that's kind of, like, the way that it happened was, like, I got – so what happened was I got Jim Zarnetsky on board, and we had a, an investor that was really interested in getting involved. And then that was, like, real easy because we just brought Jim. Like, hey, this guy did – this guy knows what he's doing. That's all you need sometimes, you know. This guy knows what he's doing, and I don't, but I have a good idea. And we teamed up, and then because we teamed up, we got the investment, and we were able to start making the movie. And to me, right. that's like a beautiful thing. It's like, like why reinvent the wheel? If you see something out there that you like, you know, contact that person. 
see how they did it. You know, find out. Like, that's the way I am. I'm like, I got to get to the bottom of this. I love this movie. How do I make this movie? You know, how do I well, make it my version? And I want to know how you how you crafted your persona on screen, because as I say, like, it's interesting what you included where right off the bat, you're just an average guy. You're working out at Gold's Gym. You came to L.A. You didn't mention the film that you're at USC Film School. You didn't mention working at wrestling. So how did you create that character who's in it? I'm not saying it's disingenuous. I'm just saying it's interesting to me what you chose to include and not yeah, include. You- well, you have to be efficient in telling a story. You have to cut the fat. So yeah. sometimes when you're like, then I did this, then I did that, and I did this. You know, it's like it can get repetitive and boring. And also yeah. a lot of times it seems like it's a pat on the back, you know. And yeah. I, think, I think if I did like in, in bigger, stronger, faster, it's like, then I got to my dream. I got to meet Hulk Hogan when I worked at WWE. And then like, well, what happened? It wasn't like disappointing. Like nothing really happened there. So like, let's just skip that part. It's kind of yeah. what it was. Like nothing really happened there that's really relevant in this story, even though it would sound cool. Then I got to work for WWE. Like might sound cool in there, but it doesn't necessarily move the story forward. And a lot yeah. of times I tried, like I, I would say, I try to just go with that. Like what moves the story forward? Like when I just did, I just did the short film on Ibogaine and it was like 15 minutes long and I had to go and cut it. I had to cut it down because it's just a short film and I wanted to fit it on Instagram TV. So I had to cut it down more and I kept going like, what do I cut? What do I cut? Then I just started cutting stuff, you know, like that I, that I was in love with, but it, it has to go. Like I got to get, you know, I got to, they call it in uh, writing or in filmmaking, killing your babies because yeah. or killing your darlings. Cause you get, you know, like you're a writer, you get so excited about something, right? You get pumped. And then you're like, you want to let it all out, but then you like realize, well, there's people only have a certain attention span, and I got to get this information out. So cut the fat, cut the fat, cut the fat, get straight to the point, you know? Was there anything about, like, because, I mean, I remember some moments in that that were very memorable, funny, and interesting choices you made. Like when we meet that bodybuilder who's living out of his car who had one cameo, I think, in a Stallone movie, over-the-top arm wrestling you're clearly suggesting like this could be you. And you say that, I think you say, yeah. like, what if this yeah. is me? But that's not really the path that you're on at that time. Like you, I just, I just wonder, like, is there a sense of kind of crafting an image like Michael Moore, like Michael Moore, a lot of people say, well, not know, really. I, I would kind of disagree with that. I think I was okay. on that path. Like, you know, like when I, when I tell the story in the movie, I'm like, here I am at gold's gym. It's 20 years late. You know, it's like, or whatever, it's 10 years later, you know, I'm, I'm here at Gold's Gym, I'm working out, uh, I'm friends with this dude, and then I'm like, wait a second, is that what I'm doing? Like, that, right. that really was <laughs> right. a real, so, like, honestly, like, I, when you say craft the character, I kind of laugh, because, like, honestly, I don't think of any of it, I just do. I just go out and be myself and do it, right? And then, when, after we, we did it, then that's where the crafting, I would say, comes in. It's like okay. in, in the editing room more than like when we're thinking it out. But it was like, I'm like, I got to interview this dude. And they're like, so my producers, Alex Bono and Tamsin Bono, they're, they're like married, they're awesome. And Alex and Tamsin would make me so mad because I loved them to death. Like they were kind of like brothers and sisters to me because they were part of, they became part of my family for three years, you know, filming yeah. everything, being there for every. They were there for everything. They, they knew my brother really well. Um, they still know Mark really well. You know, they still know my parents really well. Just great people. And they would say to me, well, Chris, 
I understand that this guy was in over the top, and I understand that he lives in a van in the back of the gym. And they're like, why does this need to be in the movie? I'm like, because it's funny. And they'd say, that's not good enough. Figure out a reason or we're not going to shoot it. And I'm like, because that's going to be me in 20 years if I just keep lifting and hanging out at the gym. Like, that's what I'm going to end up as. And I would get really mad, and I would, like, yell it at them. Like, because I'm going to end up like that if I just keep doing what I'm doing. And they're like, that's it. Like, that's, that's why it's important in the movie. And that's how we crafted things, you know? Like, right. they, would, they would really push me. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever had this, but, like, if you're writing a piece or working on something, and, like, somebody comes to you, they're like, well, what's the point of this? And you're like, endlessly. First, you're like, yeah, you're like, well, you're like, obviously, this is a great story. What do you, why do you need to know the point to it? And, like, actually, when that person asking that question, if that question makes you mad, that means you need to figure it out because you don't even know why it's cool yet. But when you go through that journey of figuring out why you know, like, why does it really appeal to you? So I always say, like, ask that question. Like, when you write a scene or you write something and you think it's funny or you think it's good, what, what's the purpose of it? And when you really define what that purpose is, then you're like, okay, now I got something I can hang, hang stuff, real stuff on. Right. And I think that that's what makes things, you know, memorable also is you thought it out. It's not just a, a throwaway scene, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm again. I wasn't suggesting. I when I say crafty, I don't mean it as this massive. No, no, I, I don't listen. I don't take uh, offense to it at all. So <laughs> I, I just bring it up because, like, the entire third act of Prescription Thugs is you acknowledging I'm presenting a documentary as one thing while not disclosing a hugely important personal addiction to yeah. these substances that I'm talking about. Where I'm like. Well, doesn't that suggest you're crafting an image which is inconsistent with a massive, potentially lethal problem you have with this very issue that becomes yeah. the third act? So it made me just wonder, as you look back at your career, are there sure. moments where you think you're making one thing, but in reality, uh, there's, there's big differences between who you are? Like anybody who presents themselves on the page or in a film is creating something. Yeah. And what what we include says something, and what we don't include says something else. And it's not always what we knew we were including or omitting at the time. Prescription thugs was really weird because the way that I made prescription thugs, like, so I made bigger, stronger, faster, right? I raised the money for that, went and made it, was really successful. But How much after was that, that? Sorry to interrupt. How much was that money that you need to raise just for filmmakers to know? The That was over a million dollars. Okay. Um, which is kind of a lot for a documentary, but it was my first one. We didn't really know what we were doing. I wouldn't say we wasted a lot of money, but we wasted a good amount of money in the beginning, just like trying to do things that, or, or, or like other things like wouldn't clear the lawyers. Like we had an amazing two and a half minute song of like Arnold Schwarzenegger singing about the history of performance enhancing drugs. I got this Arnold impersonator from Howard Stern. I had like, he sang the song. It, I mean, this was like a bang-up piece done by like a top high-end animation studio in Hollywood. And yeah. we paid like over $50,000 to have that done. And the lawyer said, there's no way you can put this in the movie. It sounds too much like Arnold. Like it literally sounds like Arnold singing the song and nobody can tell the difference and huh. you're going to get in trouble for it. Because okay. the guy was too good of an impersonator. Right. They said like maybe if you did it, like with your voice, and I'm like, nah, we don't want to do it like that, you know? <laughs> But like, but that's kind of the the um, some of the things that you waste money on in the beginning. You know, is like you just out there and like, okay, boo, let's do it. But you asking something right before that too. Uh, 
Oh, right? just to, just in terms of when you are putting yourself on screen, when you're you know you're creating oh, what a kind we of, omit, right? Yeah, what we don't include is really important. Yeah, and you know, in prescription thugs, it was really weird because I so okay, so I what happened was I did bigger, stronger, faster than I did than I did trophy kids. Trophy kids was just because my best friend was coaching basketball and I kept going to practice with him. Uh, once, you know, like he used to play basketball at Michigan. He was a big baller. Like when he was a, younger, he's like six foot eight. He's huge. And he's coaching all these kids. And these kids' parents are yelling at my buddy Leland who played for university of Michigan. My kid's good. He can shoot. He needs to be playing. And all these parents yelling at these kids. I'm like, we got to film this, man. I started just going to practice with him and filming all the parents talking to them and different things. And we made a movie about it, about obsessive sports parents, right? And then while that was all going on, me and Leland, the guy that made Trophy Kids together, we were, we were buddies, but we were also like drinking buddies. So we were getting sloshed every night in between making this movie, you know? And that just led me down a really bad path. And then like Leland and I kind of like weren't really talking much anymore. We weren't really that close of friends anymore. And we're friends again now. Everything's cool. But like it, there was a rough there was a rough patch there where we just kind of separated. I was, I got to be like out of control with drinking. And I also went, so like a lot of people don't know this because it's too hard to explain in the movie. I kind of say it, but like what happened was I was a prescription drug addict. And then to get off the drugs, I needed to move to drinking because I could never sleep. And I was always in like my, my, you know, things would be throbbing. I'd be in pain and I need something to sleep. So I would just basically drink myself to sleep every night, which is terrible for you. Um, that did a lot of damage to me. It did a lot of damage to a lot of relationships I had and friendships I had and, and things like that. And um, that's why like coming out of the other side, like people look at what I'm into now with psychedelics. So like, what are you doing? You were just a drug addict and an alcoholic. And I said, yeah, my problem was I was taking the wrong drugs because these drugs make me feel great. These other drugs make me feel like crap, you know? And that was the difference. I think like alcohol, and, you know, you have things like alcohol and tobacco they are completely legal and they just crush people, you know. And then you have things like psychedelics, which take people that have severe PTSD that's not, and depression that's not treatable by anything else on the planet and you give them a little ketamine or LSD or whatever and, like, next thing you know, the guy's a functioning citizen again. So while there's not really good drugs or bad drugs, like, I don't put it in those things, it's like, what are you choosing to react to? You know, what, what is it that you choose to like? And if you choose something that's like a dopamine pusher, like uh, if you look at uh, things like alcohol and tobacco, th those hit dopamine receptors. That's just like having a sugar fix, you know, but if you take a psychedelic, it produces serotonin in the brain. And the difference between serotonin and dopamine is huge. If you serotonin is the love that you get from your child, you know, when they come home from school, that gives you serotonin. That's, that's a real feel good feeling. And that's what really makes people feel good. And that's what really makes people feel connected and not feel like a loser and feel confident and all these things is that, you know, serotonin. And the problem is we're always trying to hit dopamine receptors because they're the quick fix. You know, serotonin is a longer, more drawn-out thing to get, and you gotta you gotta spend time to make serotonin happen. You know, because you have to develop these bonds, and then you have to, you know, then you get the emotions from those bonds. And I just think like those differences are so interesting, and it's crazy that you have some 
things on this planet that just hit those dopamine receptors, and that's okay. But you have to know like when to use those and when not to use those, you know. And when and those can be addictive. And if something's addictive, I don't think addiction is a problem. The problem is like what what is the consequence of that addiction, you know? So like for example, there's a plant called kratom, which I did my movie A Leaf of Faith on, and kratom can be addictive, but it can also make people feel amazing. So if you feel really depressed, what's worse, being addicted to something that's about as addictive as coffee or being depressed? Well, being depressed is always going to be worse, you know? And so people do have problems getting off of Kratom, but the problem is every time, every person I've ever talked to that has had a problem with withdrawals getting off of it, they're taking like a whole bottle a day. They're taking like 20 or 30 grams of Kratom a day. I'm talking about taking little amounts to make you feel better, you know? And so I'll always back that. Like, yeah, it's addictive, but so is coffee. Like, what, like if you're going to get – so right now I have a, a brand of Kratom called Mind Bullet. And Mind Bullet, we just sell it online. It's just something that Mark and I made because it gives you a lot of cognitive function also. And, and I thought that marketing it not – like, if you market something for pain, the FDA will come right after you. Like, they don't like that. But if you market something for cognitive function or, hey, this helps your brain work better, they don't usually come after you for that. That's why we called it Mind Bullet, you know, and – and we sell it, and I and honestly, like Mark and I have made a major impact on the whole fitness industry by selling Mind Bullet. You know, like people love it. It's everybody's, all the people that follow us. It's their pre workout now. They just take Mind Bullet because all these other pre workouts, um, what they do is they basically just jack you up with caffeine, and you know a bunch of other stimulants and get you all fired up. Whereas kratom actually kills pain makes you really focused. It actually hits your opioid receptors, makes you really focused, and makes you train harder. So in my opinion, it's a performance-enhancing supplement. And that's the way that I, like, that's the way I look at things. Is like, not like the drug itself is good or bad, but like what is the consequence of, of using that? And the consequence of using Kratom uh, every day in small doses for a pre-workout is pretty much nothing, except for maybe you get a dry mouth, you know? But when you take it five times a day, it could be addictive. You just have to know those things. Yeah, no, I think you've done a really good job in, like, I mean, bigger, stronger, faster of just talking about why do we have these these drugs that are illicit versus other ones that people are using safely. There are extreme examples where it goes wrong. But I liked how you investigated behind the rhetoric of, of like, the war on drugs to talk to real people um, from a variety of different viewpoints about their opinions on this stuff and their experiences with it, and that we don't really have long-term studies to understand the effects of a lot of stuff that people are, are very dogmatic and here's exactly what it does, but there's not a lot of proof behind their assertions. But I, I wondered also, like, you, you allow us to see your mom's reaction to you, you admitting that not just that you had done steroids, but that you got it from an uncle, I believe, yeah. What is, what is, how are your parents feeling about your work? Like, like how have they reacted to what you've exposed? Like, and, and, and like Michael Moore, you always wow. seem to bring this back to America, that this is an American dynamic, American well, issue. You know, what's funny is I'm 47 years old. And when I did psychedelics, I didn't tell my family because I knew what they would say. And so after I did it, I was, you know, I called my dad. I was telling him all about the experience. My dad's real cool. He's real chill with everything. He's a realist. And I knew my mom would flip out, but my mom is in severe chronic pain. 
So I tried to tell my mom, I have an answer for your pain. And she didn't even want to hear it, you know? And now I'm telling her like, Hey, look, I just, I just learned that we could microdose you on Ibogaine. You don't even need to get high and we might be able to fix your knee. That's you've been on a walker for two years, you know, or three years. We can fix that. If you let me, if you let me help you. And she's still like, kind of, eh, I don't know, but she does definitely trust me. Like, so here's the thing. My mom personally will go tell everybody about what I did. Like, here's, here's his new movie. Go watch this. But even with like Kratom, she's like, yeah, I don't really take it. I'm like, mom, you're in so much pain. This can really help you. Yeah, but I don't really like taking anything. Well, why? Because a doctor didn't give it to her. She's programmed. And if she can get out of that programming, you know, then and it's like part of getting out of that programming is like when you do psychedelics, you, you come right out of that programming, you know? You're like, oh, yeah, that, these people didn't have my best interest in mind. You can just, you can just easily see that, you know? How does that, how does that make you feel? Because, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of outrage that you feel, like especially with prescription thugs, that, you know, we're the only industrialized country in the world where they're allowed to market all of these highly addictive pharmaceutical drugs. And, I mean, I think you say that. Yeah, right now we're in a pandemic, right? We're, we're right. completely locked down. Nobody can go anywhere and do nothing, and still 70% of the commercials on CNN come from drug companies. In any non-election year, it's like 70% of their ads on, on uh, CNN and Fox Cable News, like all the cable news stations, they're drug ads. You know, so like they're just pushing drugs on TV like crazy. And um, go watch CNN. See how many ads you see for – I can tell you all the drugs. Do Pixit and, like, you know, all these different things that they have. Right. They have, like, little uh, trilogy, easiest one. You know, it's like I, I got these jingles in my head from prescription thugs <laughs> songs, you know, basically, sure. like, from, from these little jingles that they do, these pharma companies. And it's crazy because, like, they just keep cranking out more and more commercials for more and more drugs. And honestly, like, when I found out that – when I found out that Ibogaine could completely kill pain – and it was studied in the 60s, yet we had an oxycontin epidemic, there's something seriously wrong, you know? Like some heads need to roll. Because I, I found something that I think works better than opioids. Now, I can't say that. I haven't done lavish studies on it. I don't know what it does, you know, to a lot of people. But in the past 20 years, I think more people have been struck by lightning than have died from psychedelics, you know? Yeah. And, and then when you look for, for uh, deaths by psychedelics – being struck by lightning, by, by the way, is very, very rare. And the getting killed by struck by lightning, I should say, is very, very rare. And the amount of uh, people is so low that when you go on the CDC's website and you try to find, like, hey, let me try to see who died from magic mushrooms, you won't find a soul because they don't, they don't even list those statistics are so low. You know, so that's really interesting to me. It's like, wait all these other drugs are on your list, but not these psychedelics. That's really interesting. So like, I know that like my parents don't necessarily endorse these things and like, they're not like, Hey, go out and do something illegal, but they kind of love what I'm doing. They love that. I'm exploring stuff. You know, like I said, like yesterday I, I did acid for the very first time. It was an amazing experience, but it was all positive and happy. I walked eight miles on acid and had a great time with my friend. And, you know, we talked about a lot of cool stuff and, just had a lot of reflective thought on things that I've been doing. And then um, I, I just felt great after that. And then again, after doing the LSD, same thing as doing the Ibogaine, there's no pain. So I'm like, well, maybe there's something to these things where 
they because you know I had some pain for, um, in my knee still because I had been walking so much because of the, the pandemic. So even after doing the ibogaine and walking five miles a day, then like my knee started to hurt. But then I did the LSD. We walked eight miles, you know, I'm like with no pain at all. So there's yeah. something to this that's killing pain, but I haven't pinpointed. I'm too early in the in the mission to figure it out. But that's like you know, bigger, stronger, faster took three years. Trophy Kids took two years. You know, A Leaf of Faith took two years. You know, it's like prescription thugs took two years. These things take a long time sometimes to just develop and happen. And I think a big part of why my movies can be, like, entertaining and good is because they do take a long time. You know, like, they they take a while to do. So, like, when we shot Trophy Kids, we shot over the course of, like, a whole season of basketball. Like, an entire season – of these kids playing high school basketball. And it was really cool to watch because we even started shooting in the summer when they're playing like summer league with AAU and different, you know, different teams and stuff like that. And we were able to follow these different kids um, through like a really important part of their life, you know, and not just go, we didn't even plan that. We just said, let's film them until we have enough footage. And then things just get, kept getting better. So we just kept, we just left it, you know, and we didn't have to film it. We, it's not like we were filming every day. What's kind of cool about documentaries is there are, for me, they're almost like a part-time job. Like, towards the end, I'll work, like, crazy to finish it. Um, but for the most part, like, while I'm shooting it, just kind of, like, gap out sometimes, say, like, over this period of time, we're going to shoot this, this, and this. And then um, and then we just go do it. And, like, in between that time, I'm thinking about, like, how to edit these things, where to find stock footage, all these other things that, that I'm doing, like, every other day that I'm not working on necessarily the – you know, the actual shooting of the movie, but sort of that's how it gets done. It gets done like in bits and pieces, kind of like when we did bigger, stronger, faster, we had a big budget, we had a big office and it was easy to get a bunch of people to sit down and work every day um, on this specific project. But then ever since then, I haven't had that same setup. It's honestly, it's really hard to find really good producers who can make things really happen. And like, that's, sort of what happened with me, like my producers, this has happened to me on every project, which actually makes me feel good is I don't have any friends anymore that I worked with because they've all gone on to way bigger and better things. You know, like my, my buddy Alex that produced Bigger, Stronger, Faster, he's the director of a TV show called Documentary Now. You know, it's like my editors left and went and did big movies. Like people leave and go do big things. And that's good because that means I'm, I'm sort of like molding these people or helping them mold into something much bigger, you know? Um, and get paid a lot more money, but it doesn't help me because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm left with nothing, you know, I'm left without my peeps. But uh, but that just also makes it available for me to find new people to work with that are like really hungry, you know. Right. Well, and I, I wonder also like going through your films when you've sort of tried to seek out big names to talk to, to confront or to discuss issues that you care about in, in the yeah. The very my, bro- that you my brother had a great comment on that. He's like, okay, because I was actually all upset that, like, I tried to get Lance Armstrong, couldn't get him, tried to get Barry Bonds, couldn't get him. And then, like, my brother was like, what are they going to – this is sort of the – actually the genesis of the entire movie um, was sort of even before that we were talking about some of these guys. And I think it just was getting involved with, like, Mark McGuire and Andrew Stendion, like, right then was when we started started actually making the movie. And I forget who it was, but we were trying to interview somebody, and it didn't go through. And then my brother's comment was like, they're not going to tell you anything anyway. And he's like, if I was going to tell you about steroids, I'd tell you everything. I don't give a shit. 
And I'm like, really? You would? I'm like, would your wife be cool with it? He's like, yeah, she won't care. And then, <laughs> and then so uh, I was like, hold on a second. Let me call Mad Dog. So I got on the other line. I called Mad Dog. I said, listen, if I did a movie about steroids, would you be willing to talk in it openly about it? My brother's like, of course I would. Why would I care about that? I don't care. You know, and neither one of them cared. So then I called uh, my producers and I said, you know, something really rude just happened. I was talking to my brother and he told me like Lance Armstrong or whoever, he's not going to tell us anything. So why don't I just interview him? Like, and then, and then Alex goes, but what does he have to do with it? And I said, he's on steroids. And Alex is like, wait a second, your little brother and your older brother are both on steroids. I said, yeah, they're both on steroids and they're both willing to talk about it. And they're like, and you're not. And I'm like, no, I just tried them once and, and I felt really guilty. So like that's the movie, and that's how it came about. Was because none of these people would talk to me, so I went and talked to my brothers instead. Hmm. That's a fascinating. Like turned out to be the best thing because you yeah. know, like if so, say I got like honestly, The Rock was supposed to be in bigger, stronger, faster. He told me, "I'll tell you anything." And then when it came down to it, and I kept calling him, calling him, um, he never he never got back to me. Then I saw him in the gym. He said, "Man, that's my bad. I tried to." He's like, I wanted to talk to you in the movie, but my publicist, my publicist said that they didn't think it would be a good idea, you know. Well, and I mean, what would he have said anyway, though? You know, he would have said, I, he would have said what he says everywhere. I tried him in college, and we all know that that's <laughs> just not true. You know what I mean? Like so, but but whatever. You have to save face. You have to, you know. Can I ask you just? I mean, just just for fun, just because I think what you did with bigger, stronger, faster. When you look at Actors, I always hear a debate of people talking about body transformations with actors. Like Brad Pitt was just in this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's like, what 55-year-old looks like that? Yeah. Like, do you think all of these guys, when they get in shape for a movie role, are they all using performance-enhancing drugs? I mean, Sean Penn looks amazingly jacked now, and he's almost 60 years old. Is that... You know, just an, honestly, the best shape I've ever been in my life was when I wasn't taking anything and when I was just eating meat. So I don't believe that everybody's on everything. I believe different people have different genetics. Yeah. And I believe that these people, some of these people implore, uh, well, a lot of these people are a little bit crazy. Like you've seen, you know, I'm a creative guy, so I put myself in that realm of being a little bit crazy. Like Christian Bale, he's got to lose like, you know, 50 pounds for a movie and he does it. And he's like, he looks like a skeleton, you know, it looks crazy. Or the Joker. Joaquin Phoenix, you know, um, these guys got to like lose all these weight and do those things. Now they're not jacked and ripped, but like they got to do it and they just do what they have to do. So I think that there's a, there's some protocols that people use. Like, I don't know if you saw the movie Southpaw, but if Jake yeah, yeah, sure. is Jake not Gilmore. on shit in that movie, like he's got probably the most, like he's probably got the best physique in Hollywood. Like in yeah. that movie, he looked insane. He looked like Rocky in Rocky four. Like yeah. he was amazing. And so like, when you look at stuff like that, you go, well, maybe he took something, but then I'm like, why do I care? Well, no, yeah. I, 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 think, I think the reason why I'm pointing it out is this idea, like you're talking about, that to use any of this stuff is well, going to kill you. Because, yeah, you yeah. care because they're trying to sell you the program that goes with it, or they're trying to tell you the drugs will kill you, right? Right, right, right. And just to say that this is like a normal thing in Hollywood – or, or what's his name? Zach Zach Efron, I think I saw him with The Rock, and it's like... Oh, yeah, he was shredded. Shredded. But you know what he said? I never want to get in that shape again. That was too right. hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, like, so here's the thing that a lot of people need to realize. If I'm dieting for three months and I go do a bodybuilding show, right, I'm going to look yeah. incredible. 
Now, say I do that bodybuilding. So my brother did this actually like a year ago. He did a bodybuilding show, and most people blow up after they, they do a show, right? But yeah. my brother wanted to show, hey, if you're smart and you're not a pig, you can do a bodybuilding show like he did, and he won. And then after the show, he stayed in the same shape. Like he still shredded from the time he did his bodybuilding show like over a year ago, which is just insane to me. And he just, he just wanted to show people that you can do it if you're smart. You know, now he obviously takes stuff also, but he was taking stuff the whole time, so it doesn't really matter. You know, like right. it, it doesn't really make a difference. Like if somebody did a natural bodybuilding show and then they just kept eating, remained eating the same way that they were eating, what happens is we tend to binge and purge. And so a lot of people will like, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal said like three weeks or three months, he's in great shape. He goes and shoots that movie. Well, what happens after that? You know, what's the rebound look like? And we never see the rebound. You no, know, I, I just think I bring it up because I think like somebody like Joe Rogan is one of the only sort of big names I know that is really open about using testosterone replacement. And it's yeah. like, you know, just yeah, it's, saying, a hidden, it's like a dirty little secret. And I think, Hopefully, bigger, stronger, faster help clear a lot of the air for a lot of people. Yeah. I know I, I've gotten hundreds of messages from people, maybe even thousands. And it's always funny because, like, it's not the intention of the movie. But the, the biggest, probably the number one email I get is, like, listen, bro, you're my hero. I showed this movie to my girl, and now she doesn't care that I take steroids. And then the next, oh. <laughs> I'd open up the next email, and the next email will be like, Hey man, you really helped me out. My mom was really mad and almost kicked me out of the house for taking steroids. But then we show, I showed her your movie and she's all good. And it's, right. it's kind of amazing because it's like people are like, Oh, okay. I guess it's not that bad, you know? And I don't want to tell people like, Hey, it's not that bad. Go out and do it. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying like when used in normal doses, these things don't seem to have the monster effects that the media is told us, you know? Well, and that's, that, that, yeah, that's why I bring it up, is I don't think you're advocating taking steroids. I just think you're saying in a society where we can smoke cigarettes or drink, we tried prohibition for 10 years, it fails, and now it's like, the, according to the advertisements, I can't have a good time unless I'm drinking. Why, is there, why are these drugs prosecuted or, or we're prevented from having accessibility to it? Like, I don't know. It, it seems like that's a Yeah, I think a, we all know the answer, and the answer all boils down to money. I mean, this country right. was built on the backs of slaves that were, you know, pulling tobacco for us, you know, and yeah. that's, that's how we came about. What happened when we did, when we had prohibition in this country, everybody went crazy. You know what I can't even believe right now is that like, basically now we have prohibition of everything. You can't go out and do everything. I'm surprised people haven't started going nuts already. You know, it's like you'll hear a isolated incident here and there, but um, like, but you know, what's funny is that speaking of prohibition, they've considered the liquor stores and the weed stores to be essential. And hmm. like, that's just crazy. Like, look, if you're going to shut stuff down, sh just shut everything down or don't shut. It's like, it, we're living in such a weird time. Like you're not supposed to travel anywhere, but like gas stations are all open. It's like, it's just weird. It's like, there's so many things that just kind of don't make sense with all this. And they're just, it's been really biz a bizarre time, you know? So it's hard to put it, put any sort of perspective on it yet, you know? Well, my last question is just if you, if you were forced to make three documentaries over the next five years and you have, let's say, an unlimited budget, what are the stories you'd want to tell going forward? Yeah. Well, uh, I like the idea. You know, first of all, I'm actually working on two documentaries right now. One is called Meathead, and that's sort of about, about my all-meat diet and the things 
the amazing things that that can do. But that's mm-hmm. a lot. That's a lot bigger of a story than just me. That involves a lot of people who have. Um, if you go look up the carnivore diet and what diseases it can help with, it's amazing. I mean, you get a list of like a, a hundred things. You know that people people have either put in remission or completely gotten rid of. I don't like to use the word cure because people get really mad about that. But like, I think it does. It can cure some things um, that are like little. Uh, we've seen it like people, a lot of people like suffer from things like skin disorders, like psoriasis. I got psoriasis on my skin. It's so embarrassing. I can't even go out. And I hear people on podcasts that are even in the fitness industry complaining, complaining, complaining about psoriasis. Like don't these people know about the carnivore diet? They do know about it. Actually. I hear them talking about it, but they, they actually clown on it, you know? And that's the thing is like, I want to make this laughing stock of a diet that people are like, look at this stupid thing. Cause a lot of really smart people in the nutrition space, they just like, oh, look at that stupid elimination diet that, because they're all selling programs and they're mad that I can tell you eat. Like I literally have an elevator pitch diet that works better than anything that you can put together. Like right. I have an elevator pitch diet. I can, uh, yeah, I'm in an elevator with you and you say to me, Hey, you look awesome. What do you eat? And I can say red meat and water, get off the next floor and see you later. And now you're just standing there thinking red meat and water. But if you actually went and put that into practice, you would get a lot better. You'd get a lot leaner, you know? And I think a lot of people are angry that the fact that it works so easy where they've gone to eight years of school to learn about nutrition or whatever. And now they're like, stand there going like, shit, man, I could have just told people to eat meat and water. Now, obviously it's not the answer for everyone, but it's an answer that I've seen work for a lot of people. And so I just say like, look, start there. If that doesn't work for you, then Try another diet. There's like a million things you can try. Like intermittent fasting is one of my favorite things to implore along with a carnivore diet. Like some days I won't eat till I haven't eaten yet today and I'll eat in a little bit. I'll have a steak and then maybe have a steak later around like 6 PM and then I'm done, you know? Yeah. And that's it. You know? So it's like, it, it's a lot of calories, you know, like it's still like 2000 calories. Uh, it's just broken up in a different way, you know? Are you feeling better overall? I mean, like in terms of just your your life in general? Because I mean, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, these, the the psychedelic journey really helps heal the brain. And my brain was disordered. Like I had all these had all this baggage with my brother, you know. And when I did ibogaine yeah. with Mad Dog, my older brother that died. When I did ibogaine, one of my they say to set your intentions. You know, hey, you're gonna go on this trip set your intentions and like, don't skip anything that comes to you because if you skip it, you'll, you'll lose that moment. If something comes to you that you have to face, they like face it head on, even if it hurts. And so I kept having like these visions with my brother and I kept trying to like talk to him, you know, like, Hey, you know, and then I got to a point where I kept trying to get to him, but I couldn't get to him. I'm like, this is weird. And then finally, like I got to him and he just said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I came to make sure you're okay and blah, blah. He said, basically, I'm, I'm fine. I'm supposed to be here. Like, I wasn't meant for being down there with you guys. That wasn't for me. I'm cool. Everything's good. It wasn't your fault. Move on kind of thing, right? Now, I know that, this, like, look, I'm not crazy and I'm not stupid. I know that that didn't actually happen, but it happened in my brain. And by that happening in my brain, it freed up. Like, honestly, like, when I got done with this trip, I felt like a thousand pound weight got lifted off my chest. I felt all the anxiety gone, all the depression gone. And it wasn't just that one issue. It's so many issues in your life adding up over years that are stuck in your subconscious that you can't get out. 
So that was really interesting to me is like that pulled out all that stuff and just made me a happier, better person that's so much more full of love and compassion towards people than it is towards like, I want to get big and jacked. So I think you're, you're going to eventually see a more evolved version of uh, what I'm doing. And, and hopefully we can, um, you know, hopefully we can get it to a point where it's really refined and it can help a lot of other people, you know, and that's what I'm working on now is like a lot of these things that I talk about, I don't go into too much detail because I don't want people running out and trying it. So I just talk about the applications of it and what I'm using it for. And then um, later on down the road, when things get more dialed in, then we can start helping people with like what more of the protocols actually are, you know? Yeah. I really appreciate your time. with this. It's been really fun just to learn where you're at and, and to talk through some of these films. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. Awesome, man. Well, thank you, buddy. Pleasure. Talk soon. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebe and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>